kangaroos are a complex issue because we have sort of competing goals from different stakeholders. Getting the balance right so that everybody is, is at least partially satisfied is very difficult to do. Right, I come up, that'll do for a start. Up you go, boys and girls. G'day listeners, this is the Pastoral Potty, proudly brought to you by the folks at Western Local Land Services. I'm your host, Edgar Grester. Over the next five episodes, we're taking a deep dive into the relationship between landholders, kangaroos, and the environment. Kangaroos are one of the most abundant wild mammals in the world, and their population numbers rise and fall with the seasonal conditions. In New South Wales, kangaroo populations peaked in 2016 at 17.4 million, tripling in size from 2005. But after the last drought hit, populations dropped down to 10.4 million in 2020. This boom and bust cycle is a natural process, but population peaks have increased since European settlement. These population increases, or eruptions, have significant implications for both natural resource management and sustainable agriculture, as well as the starvation of millions of kangaroos during drought. It's a nationwide issue that involves a whole bunch of diverse stakeholders. So in this episode, we'll talk to some ecologists to better understand the complex issues and solutions surrounding kangaroo management. And we'll hear from a researcher who's developing a tool for land managers to forecast kangaroo numbers at a property scale to help improve management of the animals and the environment. I'm John Reid. I'm an ecologist and have a PhD in ecosystem management and a long-time interest in managing pastoral areas for both pastoral purposes and, and environmental and conservation purposes. So I live in uh, South Australia and I'm affiliated with the University of Adelaide, but uh, operate as an independent consultant. And uh, this kangaroo issue, um, it's just an interest of mine. So can you tell me what exactly is the problem with having too many kangaroo numbers in Australia? The issue is if you have too many herbivores, it doesn't really matter if they're cows or rabbits or goats or kangaroos and they are unsustainable levels, then they're reducing the amount of food and that then has implications for animal welfare and it also has really big implications for the environment in general for threatened plant species for animals that depend on the plants and it cascades on production values as well so the issue from an ecological point of view there's probably an optimum number of kangaroos for the environment and you know that is normally governed by a combination of resource availability which is the amount of grass on the ground and predation rates, predation by, you know, dingoes and Aboriginal hunters used to keep the populations down a bit. We've removed that predation and hunting pressure largely, and we've provided better environments for kangaroos, more permanent waters and, and you know, more extensive grasslands. And so kangaroo numbers have increased above their sustainable carrying capacity. And then whenever we enter a dry period, we have millions more kangaroos than the country can sustain and yeah they die horrible deaths and and with it they threaten a whole range of plant and animal species so that that's the the crux of the ecological issues john's focus on kangaroo management stems back to a stint he did a while back on some pastoral stations but his passion for the environment is deeply connected to his time growing up in nature i've been interested in in wildlife since i can remember since i was a little boy always used to you know keep spiders and slugs and snails and snakes and things like that. And I pride myself in not having grown up and like most people sort of grow up and lose that, that wonder and awe about um, wildlife and the environment. I just um, have managed to avoid growing up and, and still maintain an interest and passion for, for wildlife. And it, 
I guess my interest in the kangaroo industry started on a couple of different levels. One was when I was actually managing some pastoral stations and we destocked them to improve the, the conditions of the environment. And, you know, as soon as it rained, kangaroos just, just moved in and we recognised pretty quickly that if we didn't manage the kangaroo numbers really quite intensively, then any benefits we had of destocking would go downhill. And, you know, at the moment I live in a, on a nature reserve. We've got mallee fowl and sandhill donuts and threatened species. And we're pretty confident that the main threat to them is from kangaroos, too many kangaroos. So we can control goats, we can control cats and foxes to a certain extent. And we've shown through some exclosure fencing that where you exclude the kangaroos or really reduce their numbers, the vegetation is a lot denser. There's a lot more food resources there. It's harder for predators to hunt. And there's been um, a whole lot of cases around Australia where exclosures are showing dramatic differences of reducing kangaroo numbers. You know, it's, it's a little bit like the, uh, you know, the Brumbies up in Kosciuszko. You take the herbivore out of the system or, or reduce its impact and then the environment recovers and the environment's far more resilient and sustainable. So that's really, I guess, the background to, to my passion for addressing this overabundant kangaroo issue. My name's Dr. Steve McLeod, and I work for New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, principal research scientist, and I'm currently working on a project that's looking at the prediction of kangaroo distribution and abundance on individual properties. Steve's research is important because understanding kangaroo numbers has implications for a bunch of different stakeholders. Kangaroos are, they're, they're, it's a complex issue because we have sort of competing goals from different stakeholders. We have the kangaroo industry themselves, which are interested in making a sustainable profit from management of kangaroos, harvesting side of it. The best way to do that is to have high yields, is to have high population size. That's not good for landholders, which the impacts of kangaroos can at times be significant, and they want low population size. And then in between those two groups, you might have National Parks and Wildlife Service, you know, conservation agencies, which which might say, we want to maintain something which is close to a natural population, you know, that fluctuates and but doesn't have substantial impacts on other species. And and then you'll have other groups and you know, animal welfare groups who are considering the welfare impacts of any management that we do. And then on top of that, you might have animal rights groups which don't want any use at all. They just want kangaroos to be left alone completely. So getting the balance right so that everybody is, is at least partially satisfied is very difficult to do. The different stakeholder groups have varied viewpoints on the matter, but ecologist John Reid points out that kangaroo impacts on the environment affect us all. Kangaroos are the major threat to a lot of conservation management actions throughout much of Australia. So there's a whole range of threatened plant species, threatened ecological communities, threatened lizards and birds and, and small mammals, that the, the primary threat is overabundant macropods. And so this is not just an issue of the farmers versus the greenies. This is an issue that we all face. And so that it's really important to to recognise that. So whether your motivation is having rare orchids and, you know, earless dragons and plains wanderers and things like that in the environment, or whether your motivation is to have uh, nice fat cattle and, and sheep with lots of wool on them producing sustainably, managing the total grazing pressure is, is really important. And equally, the, the solutions have to be spread throughout those land systems too, because where you have 
national parks or conservation properties adjacent to farming land and pastoral land, there are some cases where overabundant kangaroos are moving from the farms into the parks and causing big problems there. And of course, the opposite is also true. And what normally happens is they actually move between the two systems and cause problems in both systems. So we definitely need a holistic way of managing kangaroos for all land uses. And that even applies to land uses that we don't typically think of, like um, you know defence land or council land and things like that. Where, wherever you have overabundant kangaroos, they're going to breed up in some areas, they'll move to other areas, they need to be managed holistically. And we need to do that. We need to set our eyes on, on all of those targets, those production targets, those conservation targets, carbon sequestration targets. And ultimately, it is the stewardship of the natural resource base, which is should be key to driving this. Once again, it doesn't matter if, if your objective is conservation or production. All of that relies on having good fertile soils, vegetation cover, water that filters in and, and sustainable total grazing pressure. So that's what's really important ac- across all different land uses. And whilst John points out it's not just a farming issue, introduced European agriculture is a large reason behind the growth of kangaroo populations, which were comparatively smaller before European settlement. Historically, when early explorers first ventured into much of the Australian rangelands, kangaroos were comparatively rare. And, you know, you can find documentation where they, you know, they managed to get a kangaroo to eat and that was that was noteworthy. And, you know, a lot of the early farmers you know, relied on kangaroo meat and, you know, they had dogs especially to, to help hunt them. And they're an important food source, but they weren't terribly abundant. And then there's a whole lot of evidence from a, a wide range of habitats that once we start excluding or controlling dingoes, and providing permanent water in areas that didn't have permanent water, a number of kangaroos has just increased and considerably above the historic levels and the, and the carrying capacity. Interestingly, whilst artificial watering points are an attractor of kangaroos, water shortages are not always the source of kangaroo deaths during drought. There are lots of examples where kangaroos have died of starvation next to a, a water point. So what it does is th- those water points allow the kangaroos to stay on there and and utilize the last of the dry vegetation. But then what happens? Kangaroos typically die of starvation rather than dying of thirst. They will succumb to heat waves when they're in poor condition. And yeah, I've, I've experienced mass die-offs of kangaroos where maybe a third of the population has died overnight when you've had you know three or four really hot nights and that's standing right next to a dam. So it's just when they're in poor condition because there's not enough food resources, that they're really susceptible to to overheating and starvation and things. So yeah, to summarise, the removal of the main predator being the dingo, and reduction in the number of people hunting either you know for traditional use or for commercial harvesting has declined, and with that, the kangaroo numbers keep increasing. What's missing in the system, in most parts of Australia, is the predators. That's Graham Colson. He's a kangaroo ecologist who spent most of his academic life working in biology, ecology and animal behaviour, and more recently as a consultant in wildlife management. There was some harvesting by Indigenous people, and we don't know what level of impact that had because we just don't know enough about it. But there was also the dingo, and before the dingo was a thylacine, and they were both specialised running hunters to chase animals that fed out in the open. And that's our kangaroos. And the dog fence gives us a really clear idea of what what difference that makes. So on the the northern side of the dog fence, 
there are very, very few kangaroos. This is in the pastoral country primarily. Uh, on the southern side of the dog fence, in places like Sturt National Park, there are or there were before the last drought, lots and lots of kangaroos, and they had no top-down control, as it's called, with predators. So their only control was what's called bottom-up, which was the food supply. And if the food supply runs out, as in a drought, or if there are so many kangaroos they've all eaten it, then that's when their population will start to go down. At the moment, we're having to act as the substitute predator. So when you get to a stage where everybody agrees there are just too many kangaroos in this particular spot, then you have to move in and become the predator. Since humans have taken over the role of nature's predator in the landscape, are there any other ways that kangaroo numbers can be controlled and managed? Moving kangaroos to a new location has been trialled in contained conservation estates and peri-urban areas, but it's not feasible in the vast areas of Australia where most kangaroos reside. And as Graham Coulson describes, translocation, as it's known, has its own set of challenges. People often throw it up. It's a really beguiling option. It sounds great because you take kangaroos away from a, a dangerous area. The, the classic would be a, a development, a new housing development, uh, and move them to somewhere nice and friendly and everything will be fine. There have been just a few studies of, of that. Uh, one from Western Australia a couple of years ago was an absolute disaster. They had a lot of trouble catching the kangaroos in the first place, and they had a lot of interference from protesters. But eventually they did. They moved 170-odd, I think it was. And within a week, 80% of those were dead. And some of them were dead on the very first day. So their main problem, as far as I can work out, was to do with the capture process itself. Because kangaroos are really easily stressed. They suffer from what's called capture myopathy. And it's, it's to do with the, the stress of being pushed or confined or held in some way. And the longer that goes on, the, the worse the disease becomes. It's um, irreversible, so they, they can't recover from it. And you don't see anything externally. They look physically okay until they try and stand up and often they can't even move. So it's a, a big problem. Graham led a more recent translocation program in Victoria on the outskirts of Melbourne. His team overcame the issues with capture myopathy, so the kangaroos were healthy when they were released in their new home. But other issues became apparent after the roos were released. Even if you can get over these basically um, technical issues of capture and transport and make sure they arrive safely, they are then in a, a foreign situation and they've got to adjust. So they might encounter some sort of accident while they're adjusting and, and perhaps they'll settle down. And we've got some that are still there, so they, they, they have settled. Or they have this urge to, to perhaps get back home and some of the ones have tried that and they've, they've been hit on the road or they've been caught in fences. But the ones that are still alive are, have gone quite a long way in some cases and others have just stayed put. So it's, it's a really diverse outcome. But I think on balance you'd have to say it's not a good outcome by any means. There's been a lot of suffering along the way. We've had kangaroos stuck in people's backyards. We've had broken limbs. We've had the road kills, as I said, caught in fences. And these are all because they're in places they've never been to before. They don't know what they're doing. And they just get, get tangled up in these awkward situations. It reminds us, I think, that we are dealing with wild animals. You, know, you, you can't just pick up a kangaroo and move it somewhere. They're, they're stressed as soon as you do anything to them. 
Uh, and it's not, not unique to kangaroos. A lot of things like African uh, antelope suffer from the same sort of thing. Quite a few birds do too. It's, it's just this immense stress of being handled and moved and, and all these things happening to you. You can overcome the stress by doing things quickly, as I said, and you can also give them anaesthesia to settle them down. That's the transport and, and capture side of it. Then you've got to think about what happens at the other end when you release them. There are other problems too, I think, and that is simply finding suitable release sites. Not many people actually want more kangaroos. So part of the, the challenge of that project that we were running was to find somewhere that um, was both secure and willing to, to have more animals. A different approach to population control is through managing fertility, but this is also limited to small contained populations. The ACT is leading the way. They're doing a lot of really good research on an immunocontraceptive, so it's an injection that immunises the kangaroo against its own reproductive hormone. So whenever they produce the hormone, it then gets mopped up by the, by the um, immune system. So it's a really neat concept. It's only practical in small populations where you can get close to the animal. Uh, at the moment, they have to catch the animal, give it an injection and then release it. So that has a number of risks, plus just a lot of time and cost. Um, they're working on a remote dartable injection, so we can just fire the, the, the injection in with a dart. Even then, you've got to be within, say, 30 metres of the kangaroo to be able to, to deliver it. Um, and if you think about the time and cost involved in that, you simply couldn't scale that up to a, a large level. And then you've got to think that all you've done is control reproduction. You haven't actually addressed a population problem as such. So if you've got too many kangaroos, that isn't going to give you a, a change in the population until many years later as the, as the animals begin to die of, of old age. It's a really good technique if you've got a small localised population that you don't want to get out of hand. You might need to cull it down to a lower level to, the, to where you want it to be. And then you'd use fertility control as a way of keeping a lid on that population growth so that it doesn't bounce back again. Fertility control has limitations in that it's only suited to small contained populations and really only provides a longer term approach to controlling kangaroo numbers. But what about dealing with the immediate increase in numbers? There are a couple of examples, but I'll, I'll start off with the Mallee Parks in Victoria, which have had a long running program since um, the late 1990s to control kangaroos specifically for biodiversity values. So the, the problem in that, those parks was a complete lack of regeneration of a number of the woody tree and shrub species. So the, the little um, seedlings would germinate and then they'd get eaten. And rabbits were partly involved, but kangaroos were the major part of the problem. So there's been a culling program in those parks for decades, as I said, that has been designed really just to sit on the kangaroo population and keep it as low as possible. So there's there's no intention to eradicate them, but to, to keep them at a low density. And in good years, that allows these seedlings to germinate and survive and then grow up to a point where they've reached the height where they, they won't be vulnerable anymore. And that's been really successful. It's a big operation and it involves culling every, well, almost every year, depending on what the populations are doing. And it's, it's worked well, but it's been a real commitment. The other one that I think is um, probably the best practice example 
comes from the ACT, where there's been a quite a controversial kangaroo control program running for about what would it be 10 years now, perhaps. And again, it's specifically for biodiversity values. This is all about the grasslands and the grassy woodlands in the Canberra Nature Park. And kangaroo grazing was shown to be a major risk to that ecosystem. So they've been dividing the area up into kangaroo management units, they call them, setting local targets for those units and culling the populations to keep them at the desired level in those management units. So it doesn't mean the whole ACT is culled, it's just done on a patchwork basis depending on the density of the kangaroos and most importantly, the state, the condition of the grassland. So that's where you start, you look at the grassland condition, then look at the population density of kangaroos and then make the necessary adjustments. Although kangaroo culling can be useful for managing areas for landscape conservation, it ultimately involves wasting what should be considered a valuable source of high-quality, low-emission protein. Commercial harvesting, on the other hand, has the highest levels of humaneness, as well as ensuring sustainable use of kangaroo as a resource. One of the main issues or challenges that needs to be faced is that this perception from some animal rights campaigners that the killing of anything is bad and then that sort of flows on to anything to do with the kangaroo industry is bad and should be stopped and you know they've got very passionate campaigns about that. What I personally believe is that we are far better off to manage kangaroo numbers commercially with accredited shooters that do the right thing and they have to shoot them in the head and they have to be marksmen rather than letting the kangaroos starve to death or treating them as a pest and culling them without those those oversights. So I feel quite strongly about that. And it's actually a really perverse outcome of these extreme animal rights organisations has actually been largely responsible for turning some people in some countries indeed away from you know the consumption of sustainably harvested kangaroo meats. That's an issue that definitely needs to be addressed. I believe ethically there is no better free-range organic meat production in the world. If you've got a kangaroo steak, you know that it's had a life where it's never been put in a yard or, or stuffed in a truck or put in a cage or administered antibiotics or, or anything else. So it's had a, a spotlight shine in its eye and a headshot. And that, that's a message that you know I really think should get out there. Steve McLeod from New South Wales DPI, who we heard from at the start of the episode, agrees that commercial harvesting done correctly is the best method from an animal welfare perspective. Done comparisons of welfare impact of, of different methods and commercial harvesting done well following the code has a very good welfare outcome. It's a very humane method compared to other methods of managing kangaroos. So we want to make sure that we have a humane method that we can rely on rather than letting things sort themselves out because at the moment that's not working very well. The last major drought, there were millions of kangaroos which starved to death. It was a terrible situation. If we can avoid those sort of situations in the future, that would be a good outcome. Now, commercial harvesting uses a, a harvesting strategy which tracks changes in population size. So when the population is increasing, the quota increases, the number of animals that potentially can be removed from the population increases, and going into a drought, it decreases. And there's been a huge amount of research, not just in Australia, it's actually been done, most of, most of the theoretical research has been done overseas in North America and Europe, which shows this type of harvesting strategy for wildlife is very safe. It's a very low risk approach. And on top of that, there's also some other measures that we put in place 
such as lower thresholds under which harvest rate is either reduced or stopped completely in particular areas if the population falls to a low level. So the idea of that is it allows the population without the pressure of any commercial harvesting to increase when it can. The way that the harvest strategy works, populations are surveyed and according to what the population size estimate is, a harvest rate is set. It's really reactive to what the population size is. So the population increases, we measure the population, we set the quota, but the information that is used to set the quota for next year relies on taking the estimate of the population size again and so on. Rather than setting fixed quotas, an alternative approach is active adaptive management, which involves learning from management actions, measuring the outcomes, and using that information to inform future actions. Steve's research project is to develop a predictive model of kangaroo numbers. It involves collecting data from several trial sites, combining kangaroo counts, ground cover surveys, and weather data. The aim is to develop a tool that helps landholders to anticipate the boom and bust cycles of kangaroo populations at a property scale. During an increasing phase in the population, could we potentially harvest the population higher initially to stop it reaching the very high numbers that it does? And the consequences of that aren't really well understood because we've never been able to do that. We've been limited by what, by what the quota would be. But that might, in the longer term, make sure that kangaroo numbers don't reach those very high peaks. And because there's not so much overgrazing, they might not lead to the very low troughs that they hit when they go into a drought. It sort of smooths out the waves, the, the peaks and troughs in kangaroo numbers. So what we would do is set up a predictive model of what this strategy would look like if we followed it, and then test it in, not in the whole population, but in a small area and see whether those predictions come true. And if it does, then there's a, a, an issue of uncertainty that we've reduced. This is the big advantage of active adaptive management is that it specifically addresses those issues of uncertainty and tries to achieve much more quickly than any other method, an optimal management. But there are very good ecological and theoretical reasons as to why we would do that. And I think it would probably achieve a better balance between stakeholders more efficiently and quickly than any other method that I'm aware of. Steve's predictive model aims to give stakeholders confidence to make better decisions around managing kangaroo populations. But the key to making better decisions is to be really clear about your goals. As Graham Coulson points out. Quite often I'm called in to advise on a kangaroo problem or a population. And the first thing I ask is, well, what are you trying to achieve here? What's the purpose of this reserve or this sanctuary or this property? What are you trying to achieve? And then how are the kangaroos inhibiting your progress towards your goal? So what's, what are they stopping you from doing? What are we doing wrong? In part, not being clear on what we're trying to achieve in part not being able to do some of the hard things that you might need to change the way things are. And part of that's political pressure and you know, community outrage about certain options. And sometimes it's just the sheer scale of the problem. If you're dealing with, say, neighbouring properties where one person has a lot of kangaroos and the others are quite happy to allow that to continue, and then another neighbour might be really anti-kangaroos, you need a, um, a more cohesive approach to those sort of landscapes because the kangaroos don't respect the boundaries. They'll come and go 
between these systems. The concept of having everybody in the room to talk these things out, to identify the problems and start looking at solutions is has to be the way to go. Because too many situations that I'm aware of just get people firing in from outside and it becomes far too uh, adversarial. Much better to get together, identify points of commonality, identify the, the bits where you're way apart and try and feed in some of the information because there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. There's some really silly stuff that goes down. One uh, is the notion that kangaroos will control their own populations. And in a very crude sense, that's true because they'll, they'll eat until they run out of food and then they'll die. That is a, a population control. But they don't switch off reproduction because they think, oh, food's a bit short this year. We better take it easy. Kangaroos will breed until they can barely stand up. So those sorts of things, I think, need addressing. And likewise, some of the arguments about how many kangaroos are uh, equivalent to a sheep or a cow, there's a lot of crazy figures around about that too. And there's some really good science that's been done. So I think we, we need to get some agreement on some of these basic parameters so that we're not arguing about those things and ideally not arguing, even <laughs> discussing how to move forward. Pastoral Potty is brought to you by Western Local Land Services and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund. The episode was mixed and edited by me, Edgar Greste, and a big thanks to all our guests. To catch all the other episodes, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to share it with a mate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>